Hi, this is Jeff Jure, the director of photography on Bridgerton, and this is the Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today we speak with Jeffrey Jure, ASC, director of photography for Bridgerton on Netflix. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Now, there's so much to talk about with, of course, Bridgerton, but also just you've got such a, a, a gigantic array of work on your IMDb, <laughs> and there's just so much to get into. But before we get there, I want to quickly mention MZ Education for Creatives. That's the sponsor for today. It's basically a Netflix for creative education. So check it out over at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. And then follow us on your favorite podcast app. Uh, search Go Creative Show, hit subscribe, and you will never miss an episode. And obviously, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, we're there as well. All things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. So, Jeff, let's dive right in. Bridgerton, huge success. People love it. It looks amazing. So, congratulations on uh, being part of such a great project. I'm very proud of the project. Uh, we had no idea that it would be this big for sure. Um, I guess you never do. Uh, we knew we had a built-in sort of audience with the books, but uh, certainly not on the scale. So it's thrilling to be a part of it for sure. When do you first kind of know, like, holy crap, this is a huge hit. Like, When is that moment? The day after Christmas. <laughs> it aired uh, Christmas Day, I think. And Basically, within a, a couple of days, uh, it was everywhere. I mean, the thing about Netflix is it gets dropped everywhere around the world mm. pretty much at the same time. So it's thrilling to see it go out and and uh, have that kind of impact around the world almost instantly. Now, it clearly is a period piece. So you're, you're not playing in modern times. And... Uh, there must have been some accommodations to certainly lighting, but maybe even the cinematography to give the show the look that it has, which to me is extremely natural. It feels really, it feels really natural, believable. Everything feels, um, you know, almost like time period appropriate, but also modern in a way. It's an, it's an interesting blend. And I'd love to hear about sort of the project comes to you. You need to start developing a look. How do you do it? What, what are you thinking about? Well, uh, obviously, there's a great history of uh, period films, especially of this era uh, throughout film history. Um, and so you pull from that a bit. But the intent was always to try and put a twist on it, to try and modernize it. Obviously, the scripts decide how a show is going to look every time for me. Um, so you could see that there was going to be something modern, something contemporary in the feel of it. It was difficult to sort of uh, understand at the beginning because obviously we had to honor the period requirements. Uh, I knew I was going to be not lighting with practical electrical fixtures. Uh, I was going to be shooting with a lot of candlelight and natural light. Uh, and for me, it was important to stick with that and to, and to honor that. Um, and not go off base, uh, even though the intent was to try and put this sort of twist on things. So a lot of that came through in uh, shot design and certainly in production design and costumes and hair and all that. And the acting style and certainly the casting, which when you see the casting, it's like, oh, my gosh, that is not that's not like anything else out there. So in in that it gave us uh, and it gave me a, a liberty 
and freedom sort of address uh, this very uh, deep, um, you know, range of films that have attacked this era and around this era. You know, Barry Lyndon was a big influence. Um, we looked at the Duchess. We looked at a lot of different projects and paintings as well to sort of inspire us, but also to not be too precious about it because that was the idea of the show is to put a modern eye on, on a, uh, you know, on a period piece. How do you mean precious? What do you mean by that? Not to be too precious. Well, I guess it means uh, not to be afraid of uh, contemporary stylings, camera movement, mm. um, framing. Uh, it, to me, it was there were two things at work in every scene. There were these sort of tableaus, uh, which are achingly beautiful throughout our locations and, and certainly on our sets. Uh, and so you're we're touring. England and looking at all these places and you just can't help but want to shoot a perfectly symmetrical, beautiful tableau moment because of the architecture and the design, the styling. But then a mix, the mix in with that uh, sort of a modern emotional uh, style of shooting, getting in close to people, handheld occasionally, a lot of steadicam, so that you feel this uh, human aspect to it, that it wasn't always, people weren't locked into these you know, these tight frames that uh, they couldn't move from. Um, so uh, so I guess that's what I mean by precious. It, we wanted it to be, feel alive and uh, to feel current. And one of the things that make it feel so alive is that camera movement you're talking about, of which I, I, there's a lot in the show and it's it gives it this great momentum, but you also you also know where you are. I think sometimes when there's a lot of camera movement, you can kind of get lost in your location and not really know where you are or what's going on. It just feels like you're following people just for following sake. I think in Bridgerton, it always feels like you're discovering the environment. And I think it was just a really good use of camera motion. So I want to talk to you about kind of your just general philosophy in this show and just beyond about best case or best uses for camera motion? Well, yeah, I think you're addressing the the issue that we dealt with, which was not to be too precious, to be, to have these tableaus, which were just too beautiful not to, not to indulge in, but also uh, have the characters drive this, this camera movement and create this energy and the emotion of the story to have, uh, to, to, uh, to apply camera movement to story. And to feel the, what the characters are going through and how they move through their spaces and how they interact and also how they interconnect with, with each other. Obviously, many of the scenes are large family scenes. So the Bridgertons in particular, we wanted to try and connect visually, literally through pans and, and dolly moves and, and steady cam transitions, handoffs, things like that. So we wanted to create this family energy, which is really on, on the set as well, the way that the actors have been playing that family has been very lively and, uh, uh, you know, and, and they're very connected as, as characters and as actors. So we wanted to try and capture that. So camera movement was, was a big part of that, trying to, you know, connect those, those pieces, connect those uh, characters and those story points. And also that sense of discovery, like you said, coming into a room with, with a character over their shoulder and and seeing these rooms as they discover them so that it's not, something that's objective, but it's very subjective. So it was important to sort of find a way into these 
amazing balls and amazing parties and spectacular rooms and you know intimidating uh, images of the queen on her throne stuff like that but always from a, a character's point of view so you, the audience had a way in and i think that's that helped the audience sort of connect to the story because it wasn't just a a museum piece you know that's what i guess i mean by precious that it was this sort of thing this beautiful object that you could uh, uh, ob- observe and enjoy from a distance it was something that you felt and, and a part of. And so those two things were always important to us in, in how we shot it in, in every scene. I think you're right. It does, having having that kind of camera movement does seem to make it feel like everything is in sync. Everything is in step with each other. And it does lend to the relationships of the characters. I never really thought about it that, ba- that way, but you're right. It's like it, the the smoothness and the perfection of that movement and everything lines up kind of does reflect on the way the characters interact with each other and what they mean to each other. It's an, right. it's an interesting it's an interesting thought about that. Yeah. For me, it's important to see how the actors play the scene. You know, you can design shot lists ahead of time and have an idea of how you're going to shoot a scene. But until you actually see how the actors perform, I, I love rehearsals, first thing of the a part of the day, watching how the actors, you know, interact and how they move and if they play the scene down or if they're slouching in a chair, or if they're, they want to get up and go over here. Uh, these are things you don't know until you get on set and you see that energy in front of you. And that really helps inform uh, how to shoot a scene uh, and where to put the camera. Um, it uh, scares producers sometimes. You don't have a shot list sometimes, but, or you change the shot list. <laughs> but I always know we're going to get through a day. I've been around long enough to know how to get through any day. Um, and not get in trouble. Uh, and, but also, but to be open to stuff on the set, the things that the energy and the excitement and the, just the imagery that happens on set is really important to be attuned to and not be locked into something that, you know, you may have designed in your head, but suddenly it's very different when you see it on, on set. And when you see the light and you see the window and you see the actor interact, the light and another actor and how they, how the background plays in what they're doing and whether that helps or hinders you can move stuff around so those rehearsals are really key and uh they help for me to to decide a lot about how to shoot uh how to film a scene and that's that's a general feeling i have about how to work uh on anything but especially this now rehearsals obviously are just clearly extremely beneficial but how much time do you put into your pre-production with things like previs or storyboards? Are, are you, I know some DPs don't really do storyboarding very much at all. They just kind of certainly not wing it, but they kind of just yeah. go into the room and see what, what comes. And others are very meticulous about, no, every shot is, is you know, written down and drawn out and crafted. Talk to me about right. your process. Well, uh, you know, I try to read the script for the story first so that you get the sense of the whole story and where it's headed um and trying i try not to rush into the shots right away but it's 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 difficult because you start seeing the show for sure um but i try to write down with every scene what the scene is about uh, you know i i tell directors to treat the cinematographer like an actor you know as a director of photography as a cinematographer i find it's helpful when the director tells me what they think the scene is about Actors get this all the time. They, that's conversation they have all the time. But we don't always get that. 
Um, and I try to get that from directors and I try to create it for myself. So I understand what each scene is, is about. It's important to see this person, see that person, or it's important to isolate this character from everybody else, or it's important to connect everybody and create some energy. So it's a general sense of what the scene is about. So I start with that as far as notes and things like that. And then, uh, you know, you, you use, uh, a lot of, uh, you know, clips from other movies. Uh, there's an amazing website called Shot Deck uh, that has mm. a, a lot of uh, imagery, which you can cross-reference. So you can look up Night Work in a Corridor by Roger Deakins, you know, stuff like that. It has an incredible database of, of stuff that's growing every day. Um, and so that's a great source. And just the internet, you know, you pull pictures and you try to uh, create a sense of what you think the the show is going to look like through photography. And are you doing extensive storyboarding or previs work at all? Not so much. No, that's pretty much the purview of the, uh, the directors get the storyboard artists for a week or a few days. Um, mm -hmm. If it's a feature film, I will usually work with a director uh, in that space and try to have a say. You know, you're working with one director on, uh, for the show, for the project. And on these kind of projects, it's, it's, you know, different directors coming and going. So they have their time with, um, with a storyboard artist. Uh, and, and on something like this, it's generally, you know, these special effects scenes or where there's a lot of coverage, um, where there's a lot of pieces that uh, need to be uh, sort of assimilated with visual effects, green screen, things like that. So they're usually mapping those things out uh, visually, but, um, but, I won't say I wing it, but I, I, like I said, it's important to go into those rehearsals and, and I can usually sort through where I think the camera can go. It's usually pretty apparent to me where it can go. Uh, obviously you need to know ahead of time what, you know, for special equipment, cranes, things like that. Um, but we carry steady cam. I mean, there's trucks and trucks of stuff out there and it's basically mostly for me <laughs> as the cinematographer to, uh, to, play, I want to say a little bit, you know, to have, you know, a certain amount of stuff can happen spontaneously, which I really, really uh, believe in very strongly. Yeah. And I think that probably helps a lot with any of the comedy in the show. Uh, just those light moments, having the freedom to just sort of just let the actors play. I mean, that that's so valuable for all moments, but it seems like for comedy, it's, it's uniquely valuable. Yeah. It's important. You always see the comedy until it happens on set and then it's like, oh, well, okay, we got to get this or the emotion. Sometimes it's in a big emotional moment and you want to move on an actor or you want to put them in a certain type of light. So uh, everything sort of comes together at that point in the rehearsal. And I can usually start placing cameras or camera, the camera and where it's going to go, how it's going to move and the light and all that. So, um, you know, you draw inspiration from where the set is, where the windows are, things like that. Like you said, uh, natural. And that was important to me. It's always been important to me to try and create something that feels uh, unlit, that it's not uh, artificial light in place, that that thing light is coming from a real place. That's been important to me my whole career, basically. So uh, I try to do that. You don't always succeed, but <laughs> sometimes you just got to put a backlight in because the hair is disappearing into the curtain or something. Uh but again, even then, try to make it look real and try to make it look natural. Yeah. I want to talk about the camera package used for Bridgerton. Um, 
let's let's talk about what you ultimately chose for a camera and a lens package. But I'm also curious what you tested. I'm always curious what what cinematographers, you know, what they what they try before they buy, if you will. Yeah. Well, I had been a big fan of the uh, Airflex Alexa cameras. Uh, I've been using them pretty much uh, exclusively for all my digital work in the last couple of years and felt that it was the most cinematic of all the digital cameras. For me, it felt most like film and I'd been shooting film for years before. So it was a comfort level that I really uh, appreciated that they had arrived at uh, and very early on in the in the digital sort of realm. Um, but uh, Netflix has a, a certain resolution requirement. So we had to look around for some other choices. And I had friends that had worked with the Sony Venice camera and uh, liked it quite a bit, even and especially friends that had were like me, were more Alexa fans and made the transition and liked it and thought it was a really good step up for Sony. Um, so I tried it. I tested it out and it was spectacular. Uh, like I said, we we're shooting a lot of candlelight, uh, having the base at twenty five hundred, having that available uh, and then testing and not seeing a lot of noise or, or a grain, whatever digital grain, uh, with that setting was amazing. And I found myself in those situations, especially, you know, night interiors, uh, and night exteriors, lighting less and less and pulling stuff back because the camera just tees into the dark and candles, literally candles became a lighting source in many scenes where I was using them like, lighting instruments. I was getting little candles from the prop department to put off camera. <laughs> like we'd have a dinner scene. I'd have a big source above that was a, a, a film light, you know, a big soft source. It was as if it was coming from chandeliers, which were in the wide shots. And then when we came in close, the, the light box sort of dropped down. But then to fill in, uh, I was trying lights and they just, anytime you put a light in those situations, it, a movie light, it looks terrible. It looks artificial to my eye. So I was pushing little, you know, uh, candles, little low candles, so they'd be out of shot or trying to hide them behind dishware, or food or whatever to, to put light in their face. And it created something that was totally uh, realistic and I, I felt was amazing and it worked really well. And, but that camera in particular, uh, I felt helped uh, a lot with, with, a, with a show like this where you're going to be working with uh, low levels and artificial light. It's amazing how Sony has really become almost synonymous now with low light. Like it, it's, it's just incredible that, because mm -hmm. I hear this a lot time and time again, people are like, I love Alexa. I, I still use Alexa. I still will use Alexa, but we needed super low light for this project. And we mm -hmm. tested out the Venice and we loved it. Like I hear that same story quite a bit and, yeah. um, they've just mastered that. It, it's, it's like wild to me. Um, I remember even just the A7S II coming out and people saying, I mean, all the test footage, people are like, mm -hmm. I'm filming this right now in my backyard with no light, and this is what you see. Like it, in, so even in their prosumer, even consumer cameras, they've just got the low light thing yeah. covered. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, we're all beholden to just a few, a handful of people, uh, uh, companies that make those sensors. I mean, it used to be Kodak and, you know, Ilford and uh, a few companies that had film uh, in the same way now that there's only a few companies that make those sensors. So we're uh, we're sort of beholden to to them. And so when they come up with something like that, that's uh, suppression friendly and uh, cinematic and, you know, they're obviously paying attention to what the needs are uh, of of us on the ground. 
on, you know, on the set. Uh, it's fantastic. And so, yeah, the Sony really won out. I also used um, Signature Primes or Airflex Signature Prime lenses, which I mm. found it was important to me that, especially with candlelight scenes, which I knew there'd be a lot of, that that out-of-focus candle wick, that, that dot of light be sort of a perfect circle. I think it was important to me not to feel that it was something artificial, that it had a hexagonal shape or what, or that you see sort of the mechanics of the aperture, the lens. Uh, I wanted it to feel like a perfect circle. So uh, the signatures really won there big time. They're very sharp, obviously. We're shooting 6K uh, as well. It was important to me to capture all the detail that was gonna was coming at us with the clothes and the production design. I mean, you can look up close at stuff. It, it, it's so real and so beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so the 6K, I thought, helped capture a lot of that information and, uh, and transfer it to the, to the audience. Yeah, it, you're right. When I was watching it too, I'm thinking to myself, like, it, it's very clean. It's very crisp, sharp. Like, you get all those details. And, like, not too long ago, I just wrapped up watching The Crown, which has, like, it, that's, like, almost, it's almost like the polar opposite of, of approaches because <laughs> a lot of times in The Crown, they're doing, like, they they kind of have that, we're going to plop the camera here and just drink it in. Here's the setting. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. You'll love it. And uh, and that's great. I mean, that show's awesome. Um, I think what you guys do that is so, it, it, it is so interesting is you by not having that ultra softness, by having mm -hmm. a lot more camera motion, by really letting us absorb the scenes and the characters, you're giving us kind of a more personal feel because you can sort of drink in the wardrobe. You can drink in the set design. You're seeing all the fine details. I think it was a great choice and allows you to experience something differently. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was, uh, the show felt like an antidote to a, a lot of dark shows that are out there. Beautiful. I've done dark shows I love shooting that way. Every cinematographer loves to use the black, you know, side of the the black end of the uh, spectrum. <laughs> yeah. um, but this and and in fact, I had to get a new television because there were so many shows I was missing. I couldn't see what was going on. It was, you know, the shows are really working at the low low end uh, and and forcing you to pay attention, which is great. Uh, this was not that. This was meant to be an antidote uh, to that, to that style. And I thought, why not do a show that's uh, lifted? I use that, that word a lot. I hate, I didn't want to say bright, but I, but I wanted it to be obviously colorful and I wanted to, to see and, and see the creaminess of this the sets and these characters and the beauty of their, the skin tones that all the different skin mm. tones that we were, we were obviously showing uh, was important. And so uh, it wasn't, there was nothing dour or troubled about the show, about the story. So it never felt that it was going to be uh, in that sort of realm um, of darkness. And, you know, there's obviously night scenes and things like that, but they can also be beautiful and lit and, uh, and uh, present. So in post-production especially, uh, we played around with color a little bit at the beginning, but, it, but I found it was important to maintain the coloring that was built into the sets, you know, within a range, you could play with warmth and coolness, but, um, but not over the top. It, I didn't want to put a veil between the audience and these sets. And, and that's, again, I think what I was talking about with, with being precious, I didn't want it to feel like a look back. It, it needed to feel present and alive. 
And so, uh, so in post-production, we uh, have an amazing color timer that works at Technicolor in, in Hollywood. And he added so much to the story and to the, and to the look of it uh, and bringing stuff out, making it colorful and lifted, but not uh, harsh or bright, you know. So uh, yeah. I'm not sure what he did all the time, but every time he would show me stuff, we were working remotely. It was amazing. I had an iPad in my house and talking to him on the phone and he was sending us uh, basically the live session to me on the iPad. I think this will become the standard way of working right now. As much as I love going to yeah. the, you know, to the labs and having lattes and sitting couches uh, and watching a big screen, uh, it was pretty great to, to look at the iPad and, and feel that it was very accurate to what we eventually got, uh, you know, on the air. Yeah. I'm actually curious about your thoughts on that because the latest iPad that was just announced, I don't know, a month or so ago, has that XDR, what the hell is it? It's an HDR screen, but it's like the XDR Pro, whatever. I mean, Apple branding is so, you never know what they're talking about. <laughs> but it's 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 supposed to be a very similar to that XDR display that came up with the Mac Pro. Um, were you following that at all? Do you have any thoughts on that iPad Pro display? Because it seems like if I can have a real XDR display in my hand in a 13-inch yeah. iPad, I mean, that is a huge deal. I haven't seen one yet in person, but. Yeah. Well, I, I have a, a new iPad from uh, courtesy of Netflix uh, at my house right now in Los Angeles waiting for me. So it may be one ah. of those. I, I don't know if they've come out yet. Have they actually been shipped? But uh yeah, they just switched us all out, everybody who's involved in the post-production part of it, uh, seeing dailies and such, uh, gets a new iPad. Thank you, Netflix. So it That's might be one great. of those. <laughs> it could be. Now, I, I, for your sake, I hope it is. I, I hope mean, it is might too. as well have the latest and greatest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, um, it's, it, what's great about Netflix, I'd just say, you know, technically yeah. they're very on top of it. They understand what their what their requirements are. They understand the needs of the production and they're great to have uh, conversations with about the high at the highest technical level. They know their stuff for sure, and uh, and that's fantastic to have have somebody like that supporting uh, supporting us and our you know all of our needs technically. Yeah, I remember at the time when they when Netflix called for that four K four K requirement, mm -hmm. and you know it was. It was the talk of the town because a lot of people weren't really even using cameras that had 4K yeah. at the time. Yeah. Is it still 4K or is it has it been bumped yeah. up at all to 6 or 8? Okay. Uh, I've heard four, uh, just 4K on our show. Uh, it may go up uh, down the road, uh, certainly if, if their uh, streaming changes. But uh, right now, it's, it's, it's a 4K requirement. We're allowed yeah. a certain amount. Uh, you know, if you're using a small uh, SLR or something, there's a, a, a piece pieces here and there that you're allowed to, to use. But, uh, but I, you know, I've stuck with the 6k because I just love the look of that much resolution for this show in particular. Uh, it's yeah. the opposite of gritty. That's how I describe it. Whatever the opposite of gritty is, that's what we're trying to do here. <laughs> yes. Let's take a quick moment and talk about MZ education for creatives. Now, what I love about MZ is I am an MZ pro member. And basically what that means is you have access to their entire catalog of high-quality, video-based filmmaking education and all sorts of topics that we all want to learn more about, directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, 
and more. And what's so great is when you are an MZ Pro member, you kind of treat MZ as almost like a Netflix for education, which is good for me because, you know, yes, you can buy individual courses and that's still a great way to do it. But like, if you're anything like me, I mean, I want to learn, you know, I, I certainly want to hone my craft in directing and editing and stuff, but you know, I'm not a colorist at all, but I want to learn about it, but I don't, you know, I, I don't need to like go through courses and courses and courses. I just want to kind of dabble in it. And when you're an MZ Pro member and you can just have that flexibility, you can play in all these different fields and learn just a little bit more in all of these skills. And that's what I love most about being an MZ Pro member. So that's why I recommend it to you. And you can learn more at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. But don't forget, when you are at checkout, use coupon code GCS20 and you will get 20% off your purchase, GCS20. Now, the courses are really interesting, and that's certainly one thing, but the teachers are just so good on MZ, and the quality of the training courses is just really high-end. Um, you've got Vincent Laferre on there, Shane Hurlbut, Philip Bloom. We actually had Philip Bloom on the show to talk about one of his courses. Um, Tom Cross, the editor of La La Land and Whiplash, does a course there. So it's like we're talking about people that are working at high levels really working in the industry and teaching you their craft. So it's, I just absolutely love it. So you guys should check it out for yourself at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, M-Z, education for creatives. Just to round out our conversation about cameras, how many were you shooting with on the show? Uh, two all the time. We have a Steadicam B camera and an A camera um, on the dolly, primarily Steadicam quite a bit. There's a bit of handheld. We had a couple of boxing scenes where it felt like it was important to be uh, able to move with the uh, the boxers really quickly. So handheld played a part there. And we've used it a little more in this season too. There's certain scenes where, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a very strict class structure uh, in this world and in the UK and England at that time, of course. Um, but so it was important to sort of play the have a feeling of those two different worlds and have them be different somehow. So handheld and, uh, you know, a little di obviously different color palette come into play when they go to a more, you know, little rougher parts of town, more of the working class world, stuff like that. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a mix, but, um, we use, uh, two cameras mostly, uh, some of the bigger scenes we've had big ball scenes. Uh, we've done a big day exterior, uh, you know, uh, stuff with a lot of uh, background and a lot of the principles, you know, if, if one family, if the Bridgertons are there, it's, you know, it's 11 people. So to get all those pieces, uh, we'll bring in sometimes a third or even a fourth camera. Um, we did a dinner scene, a couple of dinner scenes, and it was a lot of connected pieces. And because I had this lighting sort of worked out that worked around the table, uh, and that was where the little candles came into play. We were able to do, a, you know, a couple of wide shots to, at the same time and then cover and do a lot of little pieces all at the same time, connecting some of the actors that way. So it's fun. I mean, you know, it's great to shoot with one camera, um, but it's kind of uh, the norm now more that uh, you're using multiple cameras on every scene. Um, I've worked on shows with three cameras full time, uh, which is very challenging. <laughs> But uh, yeah, but it can be fun. Do you operate at all? Uh, I am here because uh, it's allowed and I missed it. I had 
great operators in the U.S., and it was definitely an option here. I didn't really know anybody here, so I, I felt that I wanted to at least start uh, that process and do it myself. Um, but I did miss it, and I really love it. All, all those little choices that you make um, that you want to author, you know, the framing is just this or that, those little things that you sort of give up with a good operator. They sometimes, they often give you something back better than what you had imagined. But for this, I just wanted to be, I miss being on the set. I didn't want to hide in a DIT tent. I love being on the set with the actors and interacting with them uh, directly. We're shooting now. It's a little different, obviously, with uh, COVID requirements. So I'm using a remote head, but I'm still nearby. I'm off to the side. I'm not on the dolly. We're using a, uh, a Libra tech head, and we have a Libra tech, so I'm working off of a little station with the wheels um, and using the wheels, which uh, always surprises people. I learned years ago how to use the wheels, and uh, I find them to be smoother and more precise than, than anything on a fluid head. So uh, that's my go-to uh, sort of way to operate. What about um, any filtration on your lenses? We tested a couple things. I I love the uh, the classic soft uh, for skin tone. For it sort of blends pores and on, on close ups, things like that for digital. But I love the way that the uh, soft effects dealt with uh, with flares and with highlights. Uh, again, going back to the candles. You know, there's going to be a lot of candles and a lot of scenes, and I wanted mm-hmm. to see how much uh, of a halo that that filters were going to put on that uh, situation. And the uh, the Tiffin Soft Effects did, I think, the best job. We're using, I think, quarter most of the time. Sometimes I'll go up to half if I want a little more of a glow to it. But um, but I don't go very heavy. I like I said, I didn't want to feel that there was this veil between uh, the audience and what was going on. Yeah. I want to transition to lighting for a little while because we had mentioned earlier that you're representing a time period that does not have the luxury of, you know, practical electrified lights. (laughs) Like you have to work with daylight, you have to work with candlelight and, you know, putting a show out there that, as you said, kind of lifted brighter, um, but also shooting with candlelight. Sounds like those two things don't blend very well. (laughs) So how did you make it happen? Like, Talk to me about the way that you handled your candlelight exteriors, which I think were just so beautiful. Um, particularly, my God, that that final scene in the first episode is just gorgeous. Um, mm-hmm. So, talk to me about that. Let's let's start with that exterior candlelight scenes. How are you approaching those in this show? It was a a big discussion with the production designer, uh, who is amazing and. I was always asking, what could there be? What was there available at that time? And it turns out, uh, especially in England, um, that gas lamps were just starting to come into, into, into being. So it was a very early on. So we stretched it a little bit. I think it came out. They actually came out on the streets of Paris maybe first and then in London. But it was very early on. But we, we sort of, you know, reached a little bit into that. And so uh, he put in gas lamps um, that would be powered somehow by, I don't know what they used at the time, oil or something. Um, so uh, so there was that to work with. So we had a little bit of that. But as far as night exteriors go, you know, you're lighting usually huge swaths of, uh, you know, of, of, of sets. And, and so, you know, 
you're putting up big units far away to sort of light uh, as much as you can and, and get an exposure. Um, you know, I'd heard about the windy light uh, for most of my career and that uh, it was something that David Watkin had had, uh, had built and designed for night exteriors. And it's basically an array. What of, is that? What? And, uh, I haven't heard of it. A what windy is it? light is a, is a sort of an array. I, I, can't, I don't remember exactly, but they're small um, sort of uh, lamps in, in an array, in a large array that he create that he used to uh, project uh, uh, one source. So at night, often in older movies, you're seeing a lot of different sources coming from a lot of different oh, directions. Yeah. But to make it more natural, you know, as if it's moonlight, it should be from one source. It should be from the moon. Um, you know, you, you you at least you start with that idea. So he created this uh, this light that could be built out into a large array of of, uh, of lamps of bulbs. And I think they're called Fay bulbs, um, and then put up on a crane, and then pushed into the scene from behind as a backlight or a side light, something like that. So, so we had that out yeah. actually. It was, um, you know, it's been superseded with LEDs now. Uh, I've been working lately with uh, Airflex um, sky panels, large 360 sky panels, and what's great about that wow. is you can dial in remotely with an iPad. As a guy standing next to you who can change the colors of all the lights that you're working with. Um, and to pick a certain color for night, um, we're using a, a bit of daylight. There's a bit of green in it. There was a, a color that I really test that I tested that I really like called virgin blue. I think it was, which seemed appropriate for our show. And uh, we use that quite a bit for to glow the windows, the curtains, and things like that. I felt I could take the liberty of um, introducing a, something a little artificial to the a little uh, fairy tale to the to the night work so that it uh it didn't have to feel real but it had to you know have the sense of uh of a, of a fable which is how we kind of approach the whole show so uh so it was that sense of being able to play a little bit and and take some liberties and make it uh you know a, a fantasy and i think something that was kind of interesting about your choices both interior and exterior is that it, the it, the candlelight never felt too warm and too dark. It always felt like, it's almost like it felt like the way you would interpret candlelight if you were in the room. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. You know, your eyes adjust to the color. So if you have a scene on a film that's super warm, uh, yes, it's, that's what candlelight can look like. But after 20 minutes, your eyes adjust and colors start to look normal. You go into a room with normal light, it, everything looks blue because your eyes are making that adjustment. Um, so, uh, and this came from the showrunner too. I had done a couple, we did a couple scenes, obviously, like Barry Lyndon, they were going with this warm candlelight. It was amazing. Uh, and I did a couple scenes where it had that feel that, that there was an overall sort of warmth to the to the scene. I thought, well, it's candlelight. This is probably what it would look like. And um, Chris Van Dusen, you know, commented a few times. He was like, oh, it looks really yellow. You know, I'm not seeing the colors of the costumes and the design coming out. And I, and I had to agree with them. I was like, so let's pull back on that. Let's keep it warm in the skin tones, but, but neutral in the set design and the, and the costumes so that those colors would come through naturally. And obviously those colors are spectacular. So uh, yeah. again, to lift that veil and sort of feel, and it was really, it was an eye opener for me to do that because I was, you know, sort of trained to do things naturally. And that was my instinct, but, you know, now it felt wrong to layer that on top of it. So yes, you're right about that. It 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 uh, 
it's how your eyes might actually perceive a scene like that when you're in the middle of a ball and there's candles everywhere. Yeah, and it's also like, I mean, you'll see like Game of Thrones or something and you, it, it, it's super dark. Everything's candlelit, you know, in those scenes and every, but at the, but it's almost like you're constantly, rem, when it's when it's dark, you're constantly reminded, candlelight, 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 candlelight. In your show, it's almost like you sort of establish that there's candles in the room, but then after that point, it's just light. And it's yeah. it's kind of a different, and I think that's part of what makes it feel more modern is because it's just, it was just the light source of the time. Like we're not making it a big dramatic thing. It just, that's what we used. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I found that, uh, you know, I would put, uh, you'd have candlelight and, or, or moonlight. And when I was just lighting faces with that same color, it tended to, uh, it, it felt um, wrong. It didn't look right. You were disconnected from the characters and there'd be candlelight in the back or, a, or an edge light, there'd be a bit of fire, but I was often lighting faces more neutrally with uh, LEDs or, you know, a source of a source of bounce light or something soft so that it was pulled back to a more normal color. So I would set the camera to create a warm uh, feel in the room or in the space outside or blue or moonlight. But I, but I'd always add something to the face to bring it back to uh, normal. And I thought that might feel art wrong somehow because it wasn't normal and it wasn't natural, I guess, but it actually was great because now you're just looking at the characters. You're seeing, you're, you feel that sense of warmth or the moonlight or whatever, but you're also experiencing, uh, the performance and, and it's not getting in the way and it feels more modern, I guess. Yeah. That's, I hadn't thought about that. Well, something too, in like those big ballroom scenes that I was thinking about when I was watching it is it's like the candle, like a big candle chandelier is up high. It's right. almost like it really is kind of a, a like a ceiling bounce more than anything because yeah. the lights are up high. You're up against what is probably going to be a white ceiling. So it's kind of this you almost have like this top lit light in, environment like that. It's it's top lit. It's basically as I was watching it, I'm like this this whole room. If this were real life, this would be a top lit scene, the whole thing. And then I'm thinking like, are you actually just doing that and then carving things out with, um, you know, are you shaping a, a full flat top lit source? Because that's really what it essentially would be with multiple candle chandeliers high up against the ceiling. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, almost every one of these large spaces, uh, has these large chandeliers above them. So we tried to pull them into shots. Um, uh, often they were adjustable on sets and sometimes on on locations as well. We had some uh, sh amazingly expensive <laughs> chandeliers. We were shooting in Bath in this one location for, I think, one of the first balls in the first episode. Um, or the maybe the sixth episode, I think it came in. Uh, and so, yes, that was the motivation. Again, I'm always looking for why, where's the light coming from? Why is it here and not there? Um, and so for us... Yes, it was chandelier light. That's what light the set uh, or, or the, this, you know, this particular location. Um, and the way that you do that, and this is very common here, I've found, you're basically shooting in museums in these locations, a lot of these locations. You're, you can't mm. touch anything. You can't rig anything. You can't hang anything. You can't put a screw in or even a piece of tape on the floor or above. 
Oh, you wow. can't touch anything. So you have to approach it very carefully. And uh, the crews here know how to do this. They've shot in these places before. So, for instance, uh, to black out windows when you're shooting in the daytime, for night, uh, often the windows are up high or, or over a large sort of uh, space. The basement uh, has a big gap uh, in, the, in the ground, so you can't get close to the window. So they have these, uh, these things called manitous, which are big, you know, they're by construction uh, sort of uh, uh, machines that can lift things or whatever, like a forklift. But they build a frame and make it all black, and they push it up against carefully against the buildings. You can put a light inside there to light the windows a little bit with uh, moonlight. But basically, they can black out all the windows with one of these machines for each window. Incredible. And then inside, is it you, just like a huge crane? Yeah, it's like a crane, but it's like more like a like a big forklift. And they rig uh, on the oh, front okay. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the front of it, they rig, and it has an extending arm, so it can reach out and push against these buildings and cover the windows. So they build these frames to cover around the windows. So you can't go up with a ladder and just tack on a bunch of, you know, material, uh, or there's no way to build, put a big tent up cause there's no support underneath. So they do this with machines. It's great. It's very fast. You can go from day to night very quickly. Um, and you can put a light inside the box. So you have some glow in the windows, which is great. Uh, and then inside we work with balloons quite a bit, illuminated balloons. So they have, Tungsten light, if it's night or a mix of tungsten and daylight inside the balloons, and they're all different sizes. These are really common in the States as well, but uh, you have to use them in these places because, again, you can't touch anything. You can't, even as you're floating these lights up to the ceiling, you know, these ceilings are quite high. Uh, there's somebody keeping an eye on us to make sure we don't damage anything because there's incredible paintings and uh, architectural detail and stuff that they want to preserve. Uh, they're happy to have you there, but they but you have to be very careful about how you treat these places. And of course we wanted to respect that. So, uh, so balloons played a big part and we were able to place them just out of the shot. Sometimes I'd be able to bring them down. If I was doing coverage, I could bring them and have them light faces a little more. Uh, but it was, it allowed us to shoot these big, big wide, uh, you know, shots in these incredible spaces, uh, easily. The locations are awesome. Uh, you've you've got quite a few really just fantastic, beautiful locations. Like, are you are, are you how much studio work are you doing on the show? It's about uh, half and half. I, I would say I don't know the exact number, but I think it's about half location work. More location work, I think, in the first season. Uh, okay. And now we've built quite a few sets uh, for the second season. So, um, well, you got that second season success money now so you, you, can, you can afford more <laughs> uh it's yeah yeah obviously it, it's great going, i gotta say it's great coming in on, the, on another season because now we know what the show's supposed to look like what it is yeah and so uh it's uh you know there's a bit of not a struggle but there's a bit of finding the, the look at the, the first couple episodes when you're starting and we started right, you know, there was no pilot. Basically, we started right in on eight episodes and um, and had to figure out what the show was going to be as we went along. Um, so I think we did pretty good. We uh, seemed to, to score on that first season. So uh, we're not changing very much in the second season. I mean, the sets are still spectacular. Uh, it, obviously, there's some issues with COVID as well, traveling and staying overnight. We did a lot of traveling on the first season. We were up in York and Bristol and down in Brighton, all over 
the UK and it was incredible. We would had a huge buses. Everybody was traveling together. It's like a big circus. It was yeah. fantastic. And going to these amazing spaces. Um, you know, I tell a story. We were scouting uh, one location. Looked felt really familiar to me. And uh, I thought that I had seen it in a Kubrick movie. I thought that I'd seen it in Barry Lyndon. So I'm scrolling through Barry Lyndon after we scouted. And sure enough, uh, it was uh, Wilton House and, in Salisbury. And he had no shot quite, quite a bit of of that uh, there. And the furniture hadn't changed a bit since 1974, whenever that was, 75. <laughs> you know, a lot of the things were still in place. You could see where he put the camera, where, how he was lighting. Um, so it was, it was, that was pretty special. If it was uh, good enough for Kubrick, we felt we were in the right place. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, I wanted to ask you about sparklers. And the reason mm-hmm. is because in the finale scene of the first episode, um, when we had mentioned a little while ago, we kind of had that that beautiful, you know, party. It's outside. Everything's lit awesome. It's gorgeous. Um, but there's this moment with sparklers. I was curious. It seems very practical to me. Yeah. Were they that practical? A, that, yeah, so those absolutely. were practical. Those were all practical. Everything on the ground was real. They had special effects, uh, these little fireworks devices uh, that were could be triggered electronically. So they would all go off on cue. And... Uh, I don't know what it was. I couldn't tell you, but uh, it was pretty amazing to see in real in real time. The fireworks in the background were uh, added after, but uh, yeah. but the colors, um, you know, we knew there'd be fireworks. So I had uh, some LED lights sort of projecting, um, you know, the the what we thought would be some of the basic colors of fireworks coming back on the on the, the characters looking up and and seeing. And we didn't have it on set at the time, but but everything else was practical and real. Uh, I also love the scene where the they light uh, like a, a, a series of bulbs that all light up in, in an array and go down this path. Uh, this mm. was a real thing. They're called festoon lights. And this was a, apparently a real thing that they, they had. Uh, our production designer, uh, on top of being brilliant in his design, is very meticulous in his research. So he was our, you know, uh, sort of... Uh, Regency whisperer, he, you could go to him and find out what what was real at the time and what what didn't work. He was covering, you know, the odd uh, statue. He'd say, "Oh, that guy, he wasn't born yet, so we can't show him." It's a statue of somebody from the eighteen fifties. Oh, he wasn't wow. born yet, so we're going to put a screen over. <laughs> he was doing stuff like that, so it was important to him that we be accurate. So, uh, so it was it was fun to kind of respect that. And I said. Was this a real thing? This thing lighting up like that? And he said, "Yeah, that's it was. Uh, it was done with a sort of a fuse, I guess, and there was oil in the lamps or something. It was sort of an early um, party light, and uh, we had a certain amount rigged to, to trigger on, and then the rest were done with electric lights, and they they, they were uh, set, you know, electronically started up. So I love the way that that scene came came together. Oh yeah." Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, you wouldn't think that that was something that could actually have ha- have yeah. happened back in yeah. the day, but it's cool to see. I, I love that up. accuracy. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's fun to, you know, we're we're a fantasy. We're, you know, it's not a, not a realistic show necessarily, but it's important that we honor and, and, uh, and you know, and do, do the period right. 
What would you say was your most challenging scene of the first season? I know you're working on two, but of what we can actually mm-hmm. go and see, um, what was your what was your um, most challenging shot? I have to say that that scene in particular was was massive. Um, we had uh, a dance floor. Uh, we had to light uh, outside. We had to light a huge area. So and we had to shoot in a lot of different directions. So uh, working at night, usually you try to create a single source, but we had to sort of triangulate the light so that wherever we're shooting, we'd have backlight uh, and turn down the other ones so there would be less front light, things like that. So all of those pieces coming together was was a tough one. And we we had to do it in a fairly narrow window. It was meant to start at dusk and they would arrive at late dusk and then go into night. So we had to time out how that was going to be scheduled. Um, Sometimes great photography is is good scheduling. <laughs> you make yeah. people work <laughs> yeah. late. You make people get up in the morning. Uh, some of the best shots you've ever seen in movies are usually the cinematographer going, we got to shoot at this time and get the light right there when it's perfect. And uh, everybody grumbles at getting up at, before dawn, but uh, but it pays off. <laughs> but uh, so the scale of that was pretty, uh, it was a pretty daunting. Um, we had cranes, we had steady cam, we had multiple cameras for sure. Uh, we had a lot of dialogue scenes that we had to film, but we also had to see the big space. And it was a big emotional moment to to get to in in the story. So it was important to see this the fireworks and see all of that sort of um, come about. Um, so uh, that was pretty that was a pretty daunting couple of days. I think it was one or two days that we shot that whole scene. Wow, that that timing it is always so amazing to me. We had, I can't remember his name. Oh, it's going to kill me. The DP for um, Ford versus Ferrari. I, I apologize. I just cannot remember the, the guy's name, but um, F- uh, Fade on relied Papa on Mike. Fade and Papa. Yes. Michael. Fade and Papa Michael. Yes. Mm-hmm. He talked to me about um, a lot of those um, like magic hour scenes. They were shot at magic hour. Like they, he was really shooting many, many of those scenes, way more than I thought um, outside at the real time. And yeah. just being like, yeah, you only have one take to do this. Just do it. Like, that's it. It has to be perfect. <laughs> like, yeah. it just, it, I mean, the faith in your cast, the trust in your crew, it's just <laughs> incredible. I mean, that's, yeah. that's incredible. It's a, it's, it's a bit of a gut turner when you're approaching the day and you know you got to get that, that, capture that window. Um, but it's thrilling. I mean, I've done it on so many shows and you realize you're going to get lucky more than you're not. So, uh, and just make sure you're ready and all your people are ready and all the pieces are in place. You can't control everything. It can start raining. Uh, an actor is not there, whatever. Um, but if, you're, if you've done the right groundwork, uh, it pays off and it's spectacular. Um, as long as the director isn't too greedy, trying to get many, many shots during uh, that w- narrow window. But again, with multiple cameras and stuff, you can capture a lot of stuff. And then it just is spectacular. And almost everybody on a film set understands magic hour they call it tragic hour because it seems like it's never going to happen but everybody knows the drill at this point on a film set if you've done a couple yeah. of movies a couple of shows that that it's important to get to arrive and get that and capture that they know it's special and they all try to everybody just in at that point the last thing i want to talk about with you is i want to go down memory lane a little bit with you just a little bit um, okay looking through your imdb I mean, you've got 
first of all, Dirty Dancing. I mean, legendary. <laughs> I mean, that's just, to have, I mean, to have something like that on your, on your portfolio is like, I mean, that, that, that's a film that just kind of becomes its own, it's its own world. It's its own thing. It's just, it's, it's now legendary, but it looks like you had a, a pretty deliberate and specific transition to television uh, at around, what would you say, like 2003-ish, 2004-ish. Yeah. It seems, it's like film, 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 and then a decade or so of TV leading us to today. Um, right. I mean, the work always beautiful across the board, and I'd love to know from you, like, it seems like a very deliberate choice, and I'd love to know how you how you came to that decision and what was going on in your life and your career, what was happening at that time that made yeah. you make that switch? Well, it's the business as well. I mean, um, television production levels have gone up like uh, enormously in that same time period, the one you're just describing. So uh, the transition from features to television was not that big. And in fact, uh, a, a lot of television stuff I was doing was bigger than the feature stuff that I've been doing. I've been, I was working on smaller movies in the 10 and $20 million range, sometimes lower Dirty Dancing was probably $4 million, um, <laughs> you know, so, and so it was, uh, it seemed pretty clear that the best scripts, a lot of the best scripts were coming through television. I was reading, the stuff I was reading was like amazing um, uh, in television. Uh, the features nowadays tend to be very, very big or very, very tiny. So it's uh, that world of sort of mid-level uh, filmmaking has gone more to television. So um, I I love it. I've been very happy in that world for sure. And luckily the production values and stuff have come up so high um, that, uh, it, you know, it's fun to fit into that. But um, so I don't know if it was deliberate. Uh, I just love doing features because you're working on one vision going forward. You're sort of Everybody's doing one project. Uh, the television tends to be a little more diverse in terms of uh, who's in control, the writers, producers, the network, you know, that kind of thing. And maybe that happens in features as well. But but at least with a feature, there's one person sort of that you're working with, a director. And uh, with television, you're working with multiple directors. Sometimes the showrunner is uh, it has the more has more of the vision of the show um, like that. But still, it's. Uh, yeah, it's been great. I've been very happy. It's funny. I was doing features. I did a television project in 1988 or some, somewhere around the time I was doing features. And the producer called and said, I just want to make sure you're fast enough to do, you know, television. This is television. It's not feature films. I mean, the films I had been shooting were 25 days, 30 days. So it was funny. At that time, there was still this uh, sort of feeling like you, you had to be really fast to do television, uh, which is true. You still have to be quick. Uh, you're still that wasn't a lie. You're still doing that. Uh, page now count. you have to be really fast, and it needs to look like a feature film. Yeah. at the same so time. So there's that exactly. <laughs> so uh, yeah, there's that's exactly right. <laughs> and when you go back and you look at your previous work, I mean something like Dirty Dancing that has really become its own thing, taken a life of its own, beloved by so many. When you go back and watch that as part of your earlier work, like, how do you feel about it now with all these years removed? Well, you see all the mistakes. Obviously, I'm like, I wish I had done this. I wish I had done that. But in a way, it's so far removed from me. It's become everyone else's film. I, I 
I'm surprised that I was even there, let alone uh, had a had a key role in the in the project. So uh, it's it's a little daunting to watch it because you know what it means to so many people, and it's become this sort of cultural you know touchstone for a lot of people. You know, there's a moment on almost every set where somebody figures out that I've shot that movie, and they'll it, it's usually a woman. A lot of women love that movie will come running up to me. And I know that look now it's like, they, okay, somebody told them. <laughs> they, figured they figured it out. It out. Yeah. <laughs> and they just want to know everything about it or they tell me their story. And often <clears throat> it's something that is really was a key thing in their life as a teenager or as a kid or, you know, uh, and it was very important to them. So it's very touching to me to, to, to see that. And it happens generation after generation. I mean, it's amazing that a film from came out in 1987 still has that impact. I'll, even teenagers will come up to me on the set and say, oh my God, it's my favorite movie. I watch it with my mom. You know, <laughs> uh, it, it continues to be a source, uh, uh, you know, pleasure for a lot of people. And I'm really proud of that. You know, a lot of films from that era maybe haven't survived as, as, as well. And uh, there was something that happened. Obviously, there's some kind of chemistry there. I find I felt my contribution was that it be as authentic as possible. There was a lot of there was uh, like Footloose and Flashdance and all these very high glossy projects that were going on at, at about the same time concerning dance. And that was not our intention. It was, you know, I always thought it should feel like what it felt like in 1963 at uh, Kellerman's. You know, what what would they use? How would it be lit? What what would the feeling be at that time? So. I th- I hope that that helped tell that story and uh, you know made it what it is. Well, for those of you that haven't seen it, <laughs> Dirty Dancing is available. <laughs> now. We're not talking about Dirty Dancing. We're talking about <laughs> Bridgerton. Although that is going to be your that's your hit single that you got to play at every concert for sure. <laughs> I'm I'm certainly proud of it for sure. <laughs> well, the show is called Bridgerton. It's on Netflix. Season one is available now and you're working on season two. So more to come for those Bridgerton fans. Uh, Jeffrey Jer, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you're a great guest, really fun to talk to, and you've just got such a great career. So check out his IMDb. Check him out on, where else are you? Are you on, are you doing the Instagram thing or no? A lot of these uh, I have nowadays. An Instagram, <laughs> I have an Instagram, uh, uh, you know, uh, account with uh, zero posts. I uh, am. I have no idea how to go forward. I think I'll probably just start posting photos I've been taking all my life. And just, are you just uh, a troll? Are you an Instagram n- troll with a with I, I, a no post profile? Yeah, I, lurk, I lurk quite a bit. There's a yeah. lot of amazing stuff out there, uh, but I'll put myself out there. I think I will at, at this year for sure. Oh, you should! My God, you get the stills. My, you can <laughs> fill up an. Att- your people would love that stuff. Yeah, yeah. I will. I will you got to get out there. I will. You got to get out there. <laughs> I'm, very yeah, sh- exactly. I'm very shy. I, I, I keep my light hidden under a bushel, as they say. So uh, that's been my uh, way, uh, uh, you know, for many years. But uh, I'll try to get it out there more. Exactly. Jeffrey <laughs> Sure, ASC, DP of Bridgerton. Thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll have to have you back for season two. That was great. Thanks so much, Ben. All right. I want to thank Jeffrey Jur, Director of Photography for Bridgerton, coming on and talking to us. And uh, all the things we talked about, I'll put a link to in the show notes so you guys can check it out. All those lenses and lighting and filters and all that stuff, it'll all be there. I want to thank Connor Crosby from ignitionvisuals.com for putting this whole show together behind the scenes and producing this show. And then we've got Dave Siegel from Siegel Sound 
Mac.com, who mixes and masters and makes the show sound so good. So you have those two guys for to thank when you have an episode that you love. How about that? All three of us are making this thing happen. Of course, follow us on your favorite podcast app, uh, Search Go Creative Show. Hit subscribe and you will never miss an episode, as well as following us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Uh, all things Go Creative Show at gocreativeshow.com. And if you want to learn more about me and what I'm doing with my production company, BC Media Productions, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ben Consoli, at Ben Consoli. Thank you all for joining us today, and we will see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. Filmmakers.